Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Jesse Stevens. This is a two-parter, so make sure you go out and check out episode one. It'll give you a lot more context to the story. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, and treaty was never made in Australia. Jessie Stevens is a creator and writer at Mamma Mia. She's the host of the podcasts Mamma Mia Out Loud and True Crime Conversations. Today, she's joining us to discuss her new book, Heartsick. Heartsick weaves together three stories of love and loss. Claire has returned from London only to realise something is wrong with her partner, Maggie. Patrick is a lonely uni student until he meets Caitlin. But does she feel as connected as he does? Anna is happily married with three children. And then one night she falls in love with someone else. Today's conversation is presented by 2SER producer Brianna Devlin. So join me as we discover Jesse Stevens' Heartsick. Hi everyone, my name is Brianna Devlin and I'm bringing you my wonderful chat with Jesse Stevens with her debut novel Heartsick. It's about three stories of heartbreak and how they can upend a life and impact you in many different ways. So here's part two of my chat with Jessie Stevens about Heartsick. We talked about her writing the book in lockdown and what that was like. And just going back in terms of the approach to the book, it's based on three non-fiction stories, then created into a fictional piece. Walk me through that process of what made you want to do it and I guess how it was writing that process because it's not like you're air quoting anything they say. No, It's exactly. a matter of creating a picture in terms of what they say and getting all the little details right. Tell me about that process. Yeah, it's definitely a genre that... I felt a little bit like I was making up as I went along because Lisa Tadeo did it with three women, but her approach was a little bit different in she spent, I think, eight years with each of her people and was so attached to details. Her journalistic eye is beyond anything I can, you know, ever compare myself to. But what I wanted with this was to have the fundamental truth of their stories written like a Leon Moriarty or a um, Marion Keys or something that's really digestible and easy to read and a page turner, but it just so happens that the stories are true. So I had to make peace with what details I was willing to play with and what details I wasn't. So there was the plot of what took place, but whether that event took place in a rugby club or a golf club didn't really matter to the plot and I was able a to protect people's identity but b to be able to set a scene better than the human memory can set a scene because that's not how we remember things we don't remember a relationship in a set of scenes often it's all over the place and doesn't actually make a great story so I had to kind of pull apart people's recounts and then try and 
create a series of scenes, which I played with creatively, but the story itself was true. In terms of the approach, what made you want to jump from one character to another? Was it to show different people's journeys and how they were coping and their different contexts and their situations as well? Yeah, and I think the decision to jump from each was definitely a device to get people to keep turning the page because if I'd done three stories, like story one, story two, story three, there's no reason for someone to start the second chapter. Like even if I'm reading a book and it's like part two, I'm like, Ugh. I, I just, I need to be in and once I'm in, I'll keep going. And this was a way for you to, in each chapter that you jump to, still be thinking about Anna's story and still be thinking about Claire's story, even while you're in Patrick's story. And I think that hopefully made it a better reading experience because the suspense was upped. Mm. And how did you find linking them together in a way? That was hard because I kind of wanted some incredible link to emerge and it didn't, except for the fact that Patrick is in his 20s, Claire's in her 30s and Anna is in her 40s. I loved that that was each sort of decade and gender and sexuality and all of those things, I think, proved the rule of universality, that this was truly universal. Yeah, so I I just think jumping from each of the chapters in that way tied a thread that all of these people were very different on the surface, but were having an identical, a near identical experience. Now, there was a final section in the book that was from your perspective, and that happened a little while ago. Did you always want to write about that in the book? I wasn't sure. For a moment, I considered doing one of the characters as myself and talking through that experience just because I knew it, but it was not interesting enough. Like, it wouldn't have sustained an entire... It wasn't anything like their stories. And so I've sort of written about it and talked about it before, but not properly, and It changes each time I remember it, which I think is quite common. But I knew that I wanted to share my own experience to allow myself to be vulnerable to readers and also to the subjects in the book that we're all on the same page. It wouldn't have made sense for me, someone who's now in a relationship, to, you know, write this book about heartbreak if I wasn't willing to put mine on the table. So I think that's why I knew I had to share my own as something that wasn't particularly remarkable, but felt like a real tragedy in the moment. In those times when you were within pain, did you journal it? How did you tap into those past feelings? Did you speak to people who were around you at the time as well to get a gauge of what, I guess, how they were sort of supporting you through it at the time? How did you tap into that? I um, did journal. So I kept a journal at the time and went and found that and read it and it had a lot of the details and even things, I mean, we have such a digital footprint now that it exists, that relationship exists in text messages or you know Instagram posts or whatever and it's like this primary evidence of uh, romance and so I looked through that but I also think that the most important details of that story were how it felt so I had to tap back into how that felt what was coming out in the journal what I said to friends at the time and just unpack all of that onto the page which was a very cathartic thing to do but also a you know it almost feels shameful because of the horrible thoughts you have about yourself but I think once you put it down you go I've been overwhelmed by people saying oh that's me too Mm, I was about to say even though they could be shameful I'm sure like me there are a lot of people who are nodding along and going yes that's me no matter what stage of life Mm -hmm. right they go yeah I can completely relate yes to and even just trying to sit down and just sort of understand and process everything I'm pretty sure a lot of people were nodding along and going 
they can yeah. see themselves in any form in that book. Yeah, that's really surprised me because I think if, even with the specific details about some of the people, I went, oh, is that too weird? Is that too, is that detail too specific? But I've been shocked by the word universal because I didn't necessarily use that in my pitch. But since I've written it and speaking to, you know, people overseas and having lots of different meetings about it, the word universal is the word used the most, that it's in those specificities that they truly see themselves and particular moments of self-loathing or of self-talk or of the cruelty that someone shows to someone else. That's where people have gone, okay, that's actually fundamentally human. Walk me through that experience of writing. No one predicted what 2020 was. Did you have the idea going into it? What was it like writing within a pandemic? I, I was extremely anxious anyway because I was living with my partner's family and I was very across the news, obviously, for my job I had to be. But I got quite obsessed and like felt like a tidal wave was coming and we could kind of see it coming, but it wasn't quite here yet. And... I think I probably got quite anxious as literally every other person on the planet did. So it was a really hard time to write because I was not in a great headspace, but I had a deadline. And in other ways, it was good because I wasn't going to and from work anymore. It was all in the house. I sort of had these extra hours, but it was a pretty massive workload, especially when COVID news and a few other work things were blowing out because it was so the 24-hour news cycle had never been more intense. So work was really big and then actually sitting there and trying to write this story that the last thing you feel like doing after writing all day is sitting down and writing. But I did get there in the end. It was the hardest thing I've ever done though. Like it wasn't this incredibly beautiful experience where I got to transcend, you know, my environment and jump into the shoes of these people. It was really, really hard. Did you find some days were a lot more productive than others? Did some days the ball just rolled so seamlessly? And up was- Yeah, but to be completely honest, at someone asked me, at what point did you just get into a state of flow? And I was like, I didn't. I don't feel like any of it was a state of flow. It was all hard. Yeah. There were some days it was slightly less hard than others. I probably have a lot of working through anxiety and writing and perfectionism to do in order to get to the stage that, you know, I listen to Trent Dalton and Jane Harper talk about writing and it's such a healthy relationship. And mine still isn't, which I really want to work on because I do love it, but I hate it. So there honestly weren't those days where I sat down and just was transported somewhere else that just didn't happen. It was like pulling teeth. It was really hard. I think probably because of the subject matter too. It was sad and it was painful to write about. There's moments where you look back on passages and you're like, oh, that's how I wanted to say it. That's it. And then you'd read it the next day and go, no, I hate it. But yeah, it was the being critical and hating what you'd written yesterday that was almost the hardest part. When you were just saying before that your relationship with writing is unhealthy, what is uh, unhealthy about it? Just to walk me through that, I'm curious. I think I put far too much pressure on myself and my identity is wrapped up in whether or not I can write something properly. And when I was five or when I was ten... I could just sit down with a pen and just write crap and love it. Like I was in love with that process and something happened during adolescence and studying and trying to find the right word that now I can't be fully present in a way that I wish I could be. So I'm very, very self-critical. I can get quite bad writer's block sometimes and really struggle and then I get angry at myself that I'm not enjoying it 
which is weird. Other things I can write easily. A recap, a television recap I can write in 30 minutes, easy. But, and I guess that's also practice, but a lot of my anxiety is tied up in writing. It's, if I'm not doing it, I don't feel like myself, but I also dread doing it and don't, I I don't find like pleasure in doing it. It's really, really weird. And I, I wish I had like a cure for it. I wasted so much time. And this is the thing is that people are like, all I did is learn a TikTok dance. I'm like, I reckon I spent more time on TikTok than I spent writing this book during that period. Like I am also incredible at wasting time. But if you've got a deadline that's creeping up on you and you don't have an option but to submit it, you just do like because you have to. And I don't know where I found the time. I have no recollection of writing it, but I suppose it was in, it's literally an hour or two here and there. It's not these massive days of, you know, your whole life being on hold. I think we're, we'd shock ourselves with how productive we could be if we had to be. Just out of curiosity, when you were writing the different bits and learning about the different people that were within the book, did you do your bit first, last, in the middle, your chapter? No, I went straight into Anna and then I did Patrick and then I did Claire and then I wrote the prologue and I wrote that last chapter, that essay, the weekend before. So I think it was due on a Monday and I think I started it on like the Saturday morning and kind of wrote it then that weekend I probably did do full days but in saying that I'd been keeping notes all year of things I knew I wanted to say in this final essay but I didn't feel I could write that final essay until I knew what I thought and I wasn't going to know that until I'd finished the rest. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the narrative and seeing different things when you were saying you're in that bookshop in that airport we've all been there looking for books at the airport Mm. I'm a sucker. Yes. Cool. Apparently they sell really well. That's like the best place to sell books. And so when I was selling mine, I was like, get it in airports. That's <laughs> where everyone buys their books. Even if you're going to Sydney to Melbourne, just yeah, get it in an exactly. airport. Exactly. You just need it there in the window. If anyone is in an airport, then I just ask them to please go and put my book in the window because mm. someone will buy it. <laughs> I think lockdown also, not only me, has sparked with having so much time at your disposal and not being able to go anywhere you want to appreciate books and you get to go to these different places it's a form of escapism did you ever think that this would be a form of escapism definitely the the funny thing was that books that sold well last year were fiction books that were really happy and even now Bridgerton is at like the top of the charts all the Bridgerton books and mine isn't very happy and so I sort of went oh if I want to escape from something is this a book I'd necessarily pick up because it's pretty sad in parts but I think there is an element of escapism and what COVID did to the publishing industry was great in a lot of ways because people got back into reading and once you get back into reading I don't think you stop I think sometimes you can kind of go through a dry spell where you just don't pick up the right book for a while and you're like, oh, can't be bothered. But once people start really reading again, you go, oh my God, there are unlimited good books. And then it actually becomes an addiction. And so that's what happened. And the publishing industry saw that is that book sales were great. And so what a great silver lining out of COVID if it means that people read more and discovered new authors. And, you know, there's so many Australian authors faring well in the US. And that's so exciting to see. What inspired the title of the book? Did you come up with the name Heartsick immediately? How did no, that come about? I have books full of title ideas that mm-hmm. never made it. The title was the hardest part, which was weird. I just wanted to nail it and I wanted some clever metaphor that I couldn't find. I had heartbreak for a while, but I changed it to Heartsick because I thought it was sort of more original. Yes, I thought that Heartsick was a bit more original and actually spoke to 
the visceral sensation of wanting to vomit and wanting to not get out of bed in a way that heartbreak has sounded. I think heartbreak is sounding a little bit cliche now. And we say we're heartbroken over something that we saw on TV last night and the word has lost meaning. So I kind of wanted a new word and that's why I went with heartsick. Mm, and I guess there can also be a perception, perhaps maybe a little bit of gendering in terms of being yeah, heartbroken, heartbroken in terms of being maybe something that's a bit more feminine and then maybe in some aspects a bit not frivolous and silly, yeah. but some people can consider it that way going, you know, how can it take you so long to get over something that, as you mentioned last night in the launch, and I'm sure lots of people can relate to it, even me, it might not have even gone on for that long. And mm-hmm. it, you think, how can it take you this long to sort of bounce back from that? It, it just is what it is. Yeah, exactly right. And heartbreak, it doesn't feel like the right word when you're in it. It's like an insufficient vocabulary, I think. I remember when my, my ex broke it off with me, I was due to do a year of studying overseas Mm. And he ended it because he didn't think it would work, which, fair enough. It's funny. It's been over for over three years, and I respect his reason, but I don't respect the way he did it. It still is something that I get a bit hung up on, and you just still get a bit frustrated and annoyed. And there are times when I thought that because I'd think to myself, oh, there are days where it still gets to me. And before reading this book, I thought... Surely it can't bother me that much. Yeah. Surely not. And even I remember one time I was speaking to one of my cousins. She is happily married. She has two kids. And she was saying to me there was one heartbreak that it took her five years to sort of fully get yeah. over and for her to process. What else do you want people to feel when they're reading this book and the journey you want to take them on? I think that's exactly it. I think it's permission. Permission to feel those things and to not feel like you're crazy or weak because you're still not over it. And to say those things out loud means that they're not so shameful. I think it's Brene Brown or something that says that once it's impossible that once you show something the light, it's still is shameful because suddenly you realise that everyone kind of feels the same thing. And, and there's not many things more isolating than heartbreak where you feel so completely alone. But with this book, hopefully, you can go, oh, wow, I'm not alone. And that's probably the biggest takeaway, that you actually belong to this incredible community of people that have come before you and will go after you. And it's incredibly human. And I think there's something quite lovely and graceful in that. Mm, That's one thing I found when I was reading it. I, I just thought, oh, I'm not the only one who's felt that. And I found it really comforting as you were saying before, in terms of linking in the ages. All three characters are at different life stages. They're at different situations, married with kids and at different points in their life. And you see how they take that load on with all the other things that they have to juggle. You could Mm. say, you know, Anna's got kids, she's happily married, and then she's still dealing with it through that way. I found that really interesting and very comforting to read. And I guess that also speaks to the reality that you don't know what's going on for people, whether that's your boss at work or the person crying on the bus or someone who's rude to you on the street. You just don't know just because you can't see it. You don't know how tough things can be for people at home and in private. And so this is a look, a magnifying glass on some private experiences that are sort of under the surface. To me, I'm sure you've modified your pitch a lot over I the have. process. What would you say now? I think I'd say it about what happens when heartbreak upends a life and it's told through three true stories. I think that's how I'd explain it and then I try and chuck in that it reads like fiction and that it's not this sort of investigative, quoting, interview-style thing. It's three stories about heartbreak, essentially. And the simpler I keep it, the better, I think, in order to get people to understand it. But hopefully it's one of those things 
that bridges both genres because I know that a lot of people only read nonfiction and a lot of people only read fiction and I wanted to grab the two the things I loved most about each of those genres and tie them together and and see what could be produced. Mm-hmm. What do you think could have gotten lost if you had kept it nonfiction? I don't even know how you'd present that going. Say, for example, Patrick, and then just yeah, blah, 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 and then just what it do you think could have been? And I think this was my very very preliminary idea was the history of heartbreak. I'm really interested in like Greek and Roman myth and how heartbreak was dealt with then. And then it could have been interviews and kind of thematic and read more like a thesis. Mm-hmm was probably my first idea because that was how I'd always seen it. But when I I think I've re-fallen in love with reading in the last five or six years and reading and reading and reading made me remember what I loved about books and what the best books all have. It was like I was studying to just go, all right, what would the perfect book look like? And I tried to sort of get the devices from mystery and crime books and coming-of-age books and books about family and all of those things and try and produce something of my own. And finally, what else do you want people to take away from the book and to feel afterwards? I really like hearing how it makes people feel and I like people's stories and Basically, I just want to ensure that people feel a part of something and that they don't feel despair, which I think is the overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. And I really, in that final chapter, because I know that the subjects might not have been feeling hope, but I do for them. So that last chapter was all about imbuing this incredible level of hope into all readers and going, this isn't the end. This feeling is not final. Things are going to get better. And you just got to trust that. Well, I will leave it there. Thank you again so much for giving me the opportunity to interview you. I hope you enjoyed it. No, thank you so much. It was brilliant. That's it for part one of this great conversation with Jesse Stevens. That's right. This is a two-parter. So make sure you join us for part two. Jesse's new book, Heartsick, is out now from Pan Macmillan Publishing. Today, the show was uh, presented. The interview was recorded and produced by Brianna Devlin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in the podcast app. There's a new Great Conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.